Well, good morning. How are y'all doing? Cool. One person's doing well. So maybe the sermon's for the rest of y'all. Um, <laughs> my name is Marco. I serve as the preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse McCallum. Thank you so much for hanging out with us and worshiping alongside of us this morning. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and go to the Old Testament. We're going to find ourselves in the book of Jonah, chapter 1. If you're uh, somewhat unfamiliar with the Old Testament, it is a very, very short book. So uh, don't flip through the pages too quickly. You might miss it. That is how short the book is. While you do that, I've got a couple of things for you while you get set up. Uh, the first one is that if you're new, there are these Connect cards in the chairs before you. We'd love to hang out with you. We'd love to take you out to lunch or coffee. Fill one out and drop it in the offering basket later this morning or take it to the Back Connect area. And uh, number two, if you don't have a Bible or if you know someone that would benefit from having a Bible, there are also Bibles in the chairs before you. Take one that is our gift to you. Every time we walk through a book of the Bible, and again, if you're new, we love Jesus, we love his word, we preach through books of the Bibles here at, uh, books of the Bible here at Storehouse, and uh, one of the things that we try to do is we try to hook you guys up with these things called scripture journals, um, and uh, we do have some for this series, they just didn't come in on time, so our bad, but they will be in by next week, and uh, now you know, so whoever's serving at Connect next week should guard them. Anyway, well, no, I mean, they're gifts, whatever. Anyway, so what I'd like to do is really just dive into our time. Uh, last week, we concluded our time in the Song of Songs. We titled it Asking for a Friend. It was a very fruitful series. It was a very uh, uh, heavy discussion-based series, so I really appreciated it. I uh, hope you did too. This week, we're starting a new series in the book of Jonah. I'll tell you a little bit more about him and this book. Uh, as I mentioned, I'd just love to dive into our time. And so here's what I would like to open with, okay? Here's what I want you to know. This isn't necessarily the main idea, but it does paint a picture for us in our time. And here it is. You guys ready? Here we go. Not all storms are God trying to get your attention. Not all storms are God trying to get your attention, but when he desires to get your attention, I promise you, you're going to know it. Okay? I promise you, you're going to know it. As I mentioned, we're going to be starting this new series on the book of Jonah, uh, a book that doesn't necessarily focus on prophecy as much as it does on this prophet named Jonah. And as we move in our examination of this good book, this great book, my argument over the next four weeks is that as Christians, our problem isn't, our problem is not that we don't understand God's word. Our problem is that we do understand God's word. That is my argument, that is my thesis, so to speak, for the next four weeks. It is not as Christians that we don't understand God's word. It's that we do understand God's word. And so before we dive into chapter one, I'd like to spend a little bit of time talking about the background and significance of uh, the, uh, the, the, the context of Jonah, but in addition to this prophet that we're going to learn about. One of the main things that I'd actually like to hammer is this piece of historical detail that comes out of this book. See, many who have read through, even many who have preached through Jonah will approach this book uh, as an account of a great story, of a, a great story of God's pursuit of rebels. But, it's, but it is nothing more than a good story. It's nothing more than a good story that gets thrown in the Old Testament canon with the rest of the books. However, what I'd like to, mm, I guess, examine touch on are two quick things. The first one is going to be this city that you're going to hear about today. It's called Nineveh. Okay? In chapter one, what we see is that God calls Jonah to go to the great city of Nineveh. Now, why is Nineveh important for you to know? It's important for you to know because previously, uh, for so long of a time, Nineveh went uh, looked at as, as like the, the, the Atlantis of the Old Testament, the lost city, the city that potentially never even existed. And it is this kind of thought toward Nineveh that promotes that really Jonah is just a book of ingenious creativity and imagination, and of course, we should put it in the Bible. 
However, in the mid to late 19th century, excavations took place and things from this great city were discovered. Big gates, everything from pottery to, 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 to military endeavor. So many things over the course of the past 200 years have been discovered concerning the city of Nineveh. Why does that matter to you? It's an encouragement, number one, that God's word is reliable. That God's word is reliable. Nineveh was the Paris or New York of its day. And we're going to learn more about Nineveh as we move on. So that's number one. The second thing is, and this is probably a little bit more common, not so much related to Nineveh, but it's probably a little bit more common if you have ever spent any time studying Jonah, or maybe you went to, to, to Sunday school and you learned about Jonah, and you learned that he gets swallowed by a big fish. Our graphic's pretty cool. Everett did a, an amazing job. I don't know if it really was a whale. I mean, it looks cool, though. But we don't know what kind of a fish. But here's, here would be my argument concerning the fact that Jonah gets swallowed by a fish. I actually don't think this detail warrants as much of our attention as we think it should. That's a bold statement, I think. It would be to say that if we desire to put so much attention into this historical detail, it would be to say, as Christians, we have a problem with a prophet being swallowed by a fish, but we don't have a problem with a resurrection. Christianity, after all, does have an element of mystery, but that mystery does not annul what is true. And what is true is that God became man, died on a cross for sinners, was raised from the dead on the third day, ascended back into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. God will go to great lengths whether it's sending his son to die on a cross for sinners or swallowing up one of his prophets in a great fish, God will go to great lengths to display his glory and pursue our rebellious hearts. So that's a little bit of a historical thing. I don't know what else you would call it. The next one is diving into the person Jonah. Jonah was a prophet. I want to talk two things about Jonah. If you're writing notes, this isn't necessarily like noteworthy stuff. This is just, I want you to know this in the back of your mind. First one is that he's a prophet. The second one is that he has other appearances in scripture, right? So as a prophet, that means that he was chosen by God to preach repentance to God's people and wherever else God wanted him to preach repentance to. In addition to that, prophets were also seen or were also known for being able to foresee the coming of the Messiah through what God had revealed to them. If you read through 1 Peter, he goes on to say that this faith that you and I have is actually a product of what the prophets prophesied about and what the apostles have established. Further, as a prophet, should you know, the office is closed. The office of prophet. It's another conversation, but if you're like, I know prophet so-and-so. Oh, you know someone that read, or excuse me, wrote the Old Testament? Probably not. Okay? The second one is other appearances. Jonah makes an appearance in 2 Kings chapter 14. You can check it out. In addition to that, Jesus references to Jonah both in the Gospel of Matthew and Luke. Why is any of this important? Why are his other appearances important? Because, here's the key, Jonah knows God, Jonah knows God's word, and Jonah knows what God can and has done. That's important. Keep that in the back burner. We're going to visit that in a little bit. Okay? So with that being said, let's dive into chapter 1. I'm going to read the whole thing. Kind of like Song of Songs, we're taking big chunks of Scripture, but these chapters are not nearly as long. Today we're going to spend our time in verses 1 through 16. And so let me read that. I'll pray, and then we'll dive into this series. I'm really excited. I hope you guys, you guys are too. Um, 
Maybe not, but God will do something. Here we go. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? And what is your country? And of what people are you? And Jonah said, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to them, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. And lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Let's pray. God, as we begin this series in Jonah, Lord, my prayer, Lord, my prayer is that you would reveal our hearts through your grace. That you would reveal our hearts through your pursuit of us. God, I pray that as our hearts are revealed, that they would be transformed by your grace, that we would take things like sin seriously, that we would take Jesus seriously, and maybe not ourselves so much. God, those who know Jesus, I pray that they would come to know you better, that repentance would take place where repentance is necessary. God, for those that don't know Jesus, I pray that they would come to know Jesus through your word, that they would be compelled and humbled and rejoice at the fact that you are a pursuing God. God, would you set me aside in Holy Spirit? Would you work through me? Would you be at work in the hearts and minds of all those who are here this morning? We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Here we go. We're going to park in verses 1 through 3 for quite a while. We're going to take big chunks. And if you have the notes, here's another thing. And if you have the notes, before I came up here, I made changes. So, you know, it's a Holy Spirit thing. Here we go. First three verses. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Here's what I want you to know. Here's that argument that I gave you a while ago. That as Christians, it's not that we don't understand God's word. It's actually that we do understand God's word. Here's what we see. We see Jonah receiving a word from the Lord. And it's not that he struggles with it. It's that he doesn't like it. It's that he doesn't like it. Homeboy 
turns and makes a completely different decision. It goes on to say, Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship to go to Tarshish, right? Nineveh is in modern day Iraq. Tarshish is like off the coast of Spain. Like this dude, like he's not just looking for another church. This guy's looking for another country, right? Like straight up. He's looking for like a way to flee the country. What makes Joppa something so interesting is that this port is known for its godlessness. We're going to hammer that in a little bit. But one of the things that you see in these first three verses is that Jonah is fleeing the presence of the Lord, fleeing the presence of the Lord, fleeing the presence of the Lord. At this time, Psalms, like the one Eric read a while ago, Psalm 139, would have already been written. Where it says, uh, where the psalmist says, if I go to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in Shoal, you're there. Jonah knows this. He's not stupid. Jonah knows that he can't literally flee the presence of the Lord. Additionally, it echoes Jeremiah uh, 23. This is what God says. Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him? Jonah knows this. And so what Jonah is doing as he flees the presence of the Lord is like he is trying to flee anything that has God's stamp. Enter Joppa. This port where there's a boat. We're going to talk about that boat in just a minute. In Joppa, no one fears the God of the Bible there. Why is that important? Why is that significant? It's significant because no one's going to call him out. No one's going to say, hey, bro, what are you doing here? I thought you were supposed to go to Tarshish. Hey, man, you weren't at a community group this, uh, this morning. Um, why are you here? Ain't no Christian going to be calling him out. Each one of us has a call that God has revealed to us through his word. Most practically, you probably know things that you ought to do that you don't do. Not because it's difficult, not because it's even hard, just because you don't like it. And so some will eventually, or not eventually, but some will isolate themselves, will pull away to go to the places where the Christians aren't. Why? Because ain't nobody going to call you out there. Nobody's going to be like, what are you doing here? Nobody's going to ask you, you weren't at a, you know, the Sunday gathering on Sunday. Um, where, where have you been? When you go to those places, nobody's going to call you out. Jonah's just trying to escape anything that has God's stamp. In addition to that, we see that there's a boat. Now, I want to I talk a little bit, and I'm going to go back to this boat thing. I want to talk a little bit about God's sovereignty. But just check it out. Jonah gets this word from God. I'm being very casual, but it's serious. All right, I'm like, uh, Jonah gets this word from God. Jonah doesn't like it, right? It's not because Nineveh is a great city because it's the New York or the Paris. It's not because he's going to parachute in and he's the only one. It's not because of all the evil that is in Nineveh. He just doesn't want to go to Nineveh because he doesn't like the Ninevites. We see that in chapter four. You can skip ahead. It's okay, right? And so we see that he gets this word. He doesn't like it. He goes the opposite direction to a different country or wanting to go to a different country. He goes to a boat, and this is where it gets really personal for us because this is where we will confuse perhaps the sovereignty of God for Satan's manipulation, that we'll see the boat and be like, oh, man, God understands. He knows I'm not the one to do this job. I'm going to get on this boat, and I'm going to go to Spain. Right? If our desire is to flee the Lord, the enemy is always going to approve of manipulation. Always. Maybe some of you have gotten that word from the Lord to go and preach repentance, to go and do X, Y, and Z, and you don't like it. And so you go the next, the opposite direction. And some things happen along the way that aren't necessarily bad. And you're like, this must be from the Lord. 
this, this totally must be from the Lord. If God really wanted me to go to Nineveh, he would have stopped me before I got to Joppa. God's sovereignty is only an inconvenience when it interferes with our will. Outside of that, no one has beef with God's sovereignty. No one's got beef with it. The sovereignty of God in Scripture drives us to worship, not controversy. It drives us to worship. And Jonah's using it either as an inconvenience or as an escape. So let's keep going. Actually, let's stay there. Don't confuse the sovereignty of God for deception. Don't confuse the sovereignty of God for you being actually deceived. So in other words, he sees the boat and he's like, this must be from the Lord. This, this has to be. He, that's kind of a 30,000 foot view. Let's, let's personalize it. Maybe you need to talk to someone, but you use gospel-centered language. Like, oh, I'm just called to another missional community. Or, or maybe I'm just called to another church. And rather than bringing the gospel to the conversation you ought to be having, you actually just use gospel-centered language to bounce out of it and go to Tarshish. Maybe it's relationships. That it looks so good, and man, it meets everything that we have. And again, rather than driving ourselves back to the word, we just kind of move forward with it. Yeah, God, like this, there's no other way. I saw a leaf fall. I'm positive that was God's call. And so as a result, I'm going to dive into this relationship. There's this uh, hip-hop group called Beautiful Eulogy, and, and one of the things that they write is, the marks of a mature Christian is not one who necessarily looks for the sign, but the one who finds himself in God's word. So let's keep going. Now we can keep going. Verse seven. Oh, excuse me. Verse four. So he's fleeing the presence of the Lord. And every time, one of the other things is every time you hear the word down, he's going down to Tarsh, he's going down to Joppa, he's going down. All it means is like, he's just getting away. He just wants to get away from anything that has God's stamp on it. Verse four, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea. So the ship threatened to break. The mariners were afraid. Now these are like experienced sailors. If you've ever met a sailor, when they're at sea, they're just like, yeah, it's whatever, it's, uh, it's Tuesday, right? But the fact that they were scared shows uh, how big and disastrous the storm was. And each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it. But Jonah laid down and was fast asleep. I want you to notice something in verse 6. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. It's the same language that God used on Jonah in verse 1. Arise and go. This is the part on the notes that I just totally changed. We're going to hammer three things in this giant chunk of scripture. We're going to talk about these sailors. We're going to talk about the the apathetic and the asleep, and then we're gonna talk about the sleeping church. Here we go. They cast lots. Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So the lot fell on Jonah. And so they asked him, what is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? Of what people are you? And Jonah answers them, but he's not answering them in a way that is like preaching who he serves. He says it in a way that is very indifferent. I'm a Hebrew. I fear uh, the Lord, the God of heaven, who actually made the sea and, uh, and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said, what is this that you have done? They knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. Let's start with the sailors. The sailors were exceedingly afraid in the midst of the storm. They were exceedingly afraid. Yet we see, at least I do, I see four things 
that they demonstrate in their interaction with Jonah. The first thing is that they demonstrate more integrity than Jonah. Mind you, here's the asterisk. These are pagans. These are not God-fearing people. These are people who do not know the God of the Bible. And they demonstrate more integrity than Jonah by rebuking him and asking him to put everything on the table. It is the non-Christian calling the Christian out. They demonstrate more integrity than Jonah. Number two, they demonstrate more faith in their pagan gods than Jonah does in the God of the Bible. As soon as the storm hits, these dudes fall in prayer to their God. And what does Jonah do? Jonah's asleep. He doesn't care. He's indifferent. He's apathetic. His heart is nice and hardened. In fact, when they find out that the storm is a result of Jonah fleeing the presence of the Lord, they ask him, what do you think we should do? And he says, just hurl me over. Just, just chunk me over the boat. The sea, the, calm, the sea will get nice and calm after you do that. His response isn't one of like a martyr. His response is one of, I'd rather die than repent. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. The third thing that we see is after Jonah tells him, hurl me over the boat, I'm telling you, it's going to calm down. The sailors demonstrate mercy. If you look toward the end, he says, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Nevertheless, verse 13, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land. And so what they're doing is, as Jonah tells them, just hurl me into the sea. Just chunk me over the boat. The pagans demonstrate mercy and say, no, man, let's at least get you back to dry land so we can drop you off. And then your God can do whatever it is that he's going to do. And finally, the fourth thing concerning the pagans is that we see transformation. We see transformation in the pagans. The first thing that we see the pagans do as the storm comes upon them is that they pray to their gods. They pray to their pagan gods. And then they are met with the God of the Bible knowing that he is pursuing them. And then as they begin to pray to the God of the Bible, as they begin to pray to the creator of the sea and of land, we see them shift. They demonstrate mercy. They are calling out to him. They go on to say, man, we're going to hurl this dude, but please don't keep it against us. And then finally, after they hurl Jonah, what do we see? That they fall in worship and surrender. Verse 16, then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. The pagan sailors, the ones who don't know God, are the ones who demonstrate more integrity, who demonstrate faith, who demonstrate mercy, and inevitably become transformed by the grace of God. That's the first thing. The second thing is we, what we see with Jonah. So all of this is happening, and what's Jonah doing, and what's he like? Jonah is apathetic. He doesn't care. Jonah is asleep. He knows what's going on. He just doesn't care. The captain comes to him and says, what are you doing asleep? Get up. Start praying. And Jonah does not care. Even when he comes to the top of the ship, they're like, what should we do? He's like, just chunk me over. Doesn't matter. Again, I'd rather die then repent. How does a Christian get to a place of apathy and just hardened heart, or a heart that's hardened? The writer of Hebrews says this in chapter 2, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Jonah knows who God is, knows God's word, knows what God has done and is capable of doing, and yet is demonstrating apathy and slumber. The same thing could be said for you and I. That apathy and slumber are results of us drifting away. 
That God's word has become familiar, so familiar that it's boring. That God's word and God's work has become so familiar that it's not good news anymore. It's just old news. That God's work and God's word is a good thing for other people who need it. And all we've done as the church has become apathetic and asleep. That's the story of the church today. The story of the church today is that we love being externally righteous, but internally we're just as rebellious. The last thing is the sleeping church. The reason I want to talk about the sleeping church is because I fear, and I, my concern is that this is where we find ourselves. So it's a continuation of what Jonah is doing. And so what does it mean to be the church that's asleep? Here are three things. First one is, we know we're asleep when we are unaware of our condition and surprised at godliness. Let's say one more time. We, the church, know, or you should know, that we are asleep when we are unaware of our condition and surprised at godliness. Here's an example. I don't know the whole thing, but whatevs. I'm sure you heard on the social medias that Kanye West converted, right? He became a follower of Jesus. I don't know that dude, whatevs. This isn't here to be like pushing his album, though it's amazing. But, right? But here's what I mean. Here's what I mean. He's a good example. Here's what I mean. Homeboy follows Jesus. That means that there is repentance that has been taking place and belief. So he's following Jesus. I don't know his pastor. I don't know who communities. I don't know any of that. But here's the big thing. The church is surprised when God regenerates a heart. That's when you know we're asleep. We're asleep when God does what God does. That's when we're asleep. For this dude or for anyone else who comes to know Jesus and we are surprised at godliness and we are surprised at the work of God in Christ, we, the church, are asleep. The second way we know that we're asleep or that we ought to know that we're asleep is uh, those who are asleep hate alarms. You guys have an alarm clock next to, your, uh, next to your bed, right? It goes off at a certain time. What do you do? Snooze, right? And there's all sorts of tactics that everybody does, right? Well, I'm just going to set it on the other side of the room so that it will force me to get up, right? Like, the whole point of an alarm clock is to wake you up, right? And essentially, it's like, okay, get the day started. Let's get going. Let's get moving. Let's knock it out. For the church to be asleep, that means we hate alarm clocks, Because what the alarm clock does, it isn't just that it wakes us up. The alarm clock says it's time to meet responsibilities. And the church does not want to if we keep hitting snooze. Now the church, just in case uh, I haven't been clear previously, is not a building. This is called the McAllen Creative Incubator. We just happen to meet here. We are the church. I ain't talking about this building. We've been in other buildings before. Nada que ver. Right? So, when it comes to this, the church is asleep when we keep snoozing the alarm. And when we're surprised that God works in the hearts of unbelievers. We are surprised at godliness. When God has told us to go and make disciples, all we're doing is hitting snooze. Because that's a job for the pastor. That's a job for the good Christians. That's a job for the special forces, the elite Christians. You know, the ones that read their Bible three times a week. The church is asleep. And the third one is, how do you know the church is asleep? In our individual lives, there is no prayer or preaching of the word. 
the first two can be kind of abstract, and we could even look at them at 30,000 foot view. Like, right, yeah, the church is asleep because, uh, yeah, we're, we're surprised that Kanye became a Christian. Uh, yeah, okay, I get it. I think the church is asleep because we just hate alarms. I hate alarms too. Who doesn't, right? Uh, but the third one gets personal. If there is no prayer or preaching of God's word in your life, then you are asleep. We're no different than Jonah. We're no different. There's no prayer. There's no devotion to God's word. God's word, see, what it does is it fills us up. He convicts us of our sin, but he also reminds us of what he has done for us in Christ, and it spills over. What does uh, me without you say? A glass can only contain, a glass can only spill what it contains, right? Same thing here. You can't spill anything if you don't have anything. You are asleep if there is no prayer and if there is no preaching of God's word. And I mean that in the most intimate devotional sense. I'm not talking about the prayer that you say from the bedroom to the bathroom. I'm not talking about the app that you have that tells you the proverb for the day where you say, hmm, that sounds good. I'm talking about devotion. Discipline and devotion. And so we, we begin to close. We're not done, but we begin to close. The church is asleep when our hearts are hardened to our sin. The church is asleep when our hearts become apathetic to what God is doing and has done. The church is asleep because we have drifted away and what we have once heard is no longer good news today. Where are you sleeping? Where are you asleep? Where are you fleeing the presence of of God. This is, this is the application of our time. First one is, when it comes to, man, where are we fleeing the presence of God? First one is the Great Commission. If you have been wondering, well, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if God's told me to do anything. No, I promise you. It's in Matthew 28. You can go to your Bible there right now, and he's going to tell you something. Okay? Each one of us has been given what is called the Great Commission, to go and make disciples. The question that comes out of that is, why are we so ashamed of the gospel? Go and make disciples. Each one of us has a responsibility to make disciples in all these social spheres or these social circles that you and I interact with. At home, whether it's with my spouse, my wife, whether it's with kids, I'm called to make disciples. Mind you, he doesn't say you're called to make converts. He said, go and make disciples. And so some might say, okay, yeah, I get that. I have like some Bible time with my kid at home. Great. Now let's go to the next sphere. What about work? I know that we are surrounded by people who don't know Jesus. And like Jonah, the reason isn't because it's hard to share the gospel, just like the reason wasn't that it's hard to go to Nineveh. The reason isn't that, man, Nineveh is just filled with so much sin. We're not saying any of those. Those, those might be even understandable kind of reasons. Those aren't the real reason. The real reason is that we just don't want to. We just don't like it. Then when God says, go and make disciples, don't be ashamed of the gospel we say yes, amen from our chair and then we lose it when we walk out of here because at the end of the day, you talk about what you love and the question is, do we really love Jesus as much as we say we do? And we're not done with the Great Commission. That's just work. What about in our city? Now, even when it comes to making disciples in our city, we will tend to think about organizations. We'll tend to think about, man, let's feed the homeless. Let's knock out poverty. Those are really good things. That is not the ultimate means of the mission. The mission is to make disciples. We might do it through those avenues. We might make disciples through partnering with organizations or meeting the needs of our city. Yes, cool and awesome and amen but the mission is to make disciples. 
What would it look like if we took the Great Commission seriously and it wasn't just us here on Sunday? What would it look like if we took the Great Commission seriously and it wasn't just the same 12 people at our group during the week? Each one of us has been given the Great Commission. And if you fall in the category of like, what's God's will for my life? To be sanctified and to go make disciples. There, you got it. You're welcome. Go. Arise and go. Where you are is where you have been sent. That's number one. It's a long one. Second one, prayer. We talked a little bit about this. Prayer. In Jonah's account of this first chapter, God says, arise and go. What does he do? He wants to go to Spain. He wants to go ride with the bulls, right? And, uh, and in light of that, we never see Jonah stop and pray, right? We never see Jonah stop and pray. This isn't uncommon for the prophets, Habakkuk, no, not Habakkuk, Nehemiah. Nehemiah is like hanging out with the king, hooking him up with some wine, right? His friends come from Jerusalem, and they're like, bro, the city's in destruction. And what does Nehemiah do? He falls to his knees, prays, and fasts. Mind you, the news that he had just gotten was like a hundred and some years old. Habakkuk, right? Habakkuk, one of the other minor prophets, right? Also a small book. Habakkuk. God tells Habakkuk what he's going to do. What does Habakkuk do? Submit to him in prayer. It's super honest, and he's super confused, and he doesn't like what God is doing, but he is going to God, surrendering to what God has said. Jonah's no different. He's been preaching repentance for a while. And so what we see Jonah do is not even spend time in prayer. So, my encouragement to you, in short, don't be like Jonah. <laughs> Commit yourself to prayer. One of the things from Hebrews 2 is, is, man, pay close attention to what you've heard so that you don't drift away. Spending time in prayer protects you from drifting away. Additionally, if, if you belong to Jesus, I want you to listen to John. Just listen to this. It's on the notes. You could look at it later. Just listen. This is what John says. And this is the confidence that we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. That you, Christian, have access to the Father. You have access to the Father because of what the Son has done for you. And as a result, the Holy Spirit abides in you. So you can come before God and be brutally honest with him. Habakkuk does it. He does it with respect. He does it in fear. He does it because he's confused. Commit yourself to prayer. Commit yourself to prayer today, not tomorrow because it's Monday. Commit yourself to prayer today. The third thing is, don't isolate yourself. In fact, throw yourself into community. Throw yourself into community. Look at, look at Jonah's story one more time. Jonah flees. And at no point do we see him praying to God. At no point do we see him even going to other prophets. Like, man, what do you think about this? It's what God told me to do. I don't want to do this. I don't want to go to Nineveh, right? What do you think? Could you pray for me? Could you follow up with me tomorrow? Man, this is, my, my heart is just hardened. I just, I just don't care. I don't want to go to Nineveh. We don't see Jonah doing any of that. We see Jonah just fleeing, right? Like John, I want you to listen to James. James says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Man, man, in, in community, there is safety as a result of what God has done. And what has God done? God has not only reconciled us to himself, but he has reconciled us to one another. So don't miss out. Don't don't isolate yourself because you're an introvert. Don't, don't isolate yourself. Don't use these other reasons to isolate yourself. In fact, bring the brutally honest reason of I just don't like it to your brothers and sisters so that they may pray over you. 
confess your sin to one another. Speak the gospel into one another. The psalmist says that when we speak God's truth to one another, it is like breathing into dry bones. Don't don't miss out on that because you just don't like it. Sometimes we don't want to like with the Great Commission, we don't want to make disciples, we don't want to go to prayer, we don't want to be in community, even though at some point we may have been faithful in these areas, kind of like Jonah, if we look at his life previous, like, yeah, man, he's, he's preached repentance elsewhere. Here, here would be my fear uh, for me, for us, right? The concern would be if you think, if you think about your previous faithfulness as an investment, then you've got it all wrong. Your previous faithfulness, in other words, what godly things you may have done before, your previous faithfulness is not an investment for your present disobedience. Your previous faithfulness is not an investment for your present disobedience. And so, as we close Jonah chapter one, the main character isn't Jonah. It's not the sailors. It is God. And what we learn is that this storm is the grace of God pursuing rebels. You are here this morning because God is pursuing you. And what chapter one demonstrates is that he's not only pursuing the God-fearing prophet, he's also pursuing the pagan sailors. Our God is a pursuing God. So, if you are a Christian, as your pastor, as your friend, as your brother, repent of your sin. Repent of your hardened hearts, of your apathy, Repent of your dishonesty with God. Bring it before him. Surrender it before him. Submit yourself to his will so that you would be molded into the image of Jesus. That does, that's not like a, like a Sunday to Monday thing. That is an ongoing process. If you don't know Jesus, you can come to know Jesus. Again, Jonah teaches us that God is a pursuing God. And if you were here and you don't know Jesus, you are being pursued. You are being pursued. I'm really excited about this sermon series because it's not just about a dude that gets swallowed by a fish. What Jonah is going to do is he is going to challenge the condition of our hearts, our willful disobedience, and Jonah is also going to challenge our thinking about us and them. Because throughout the book, God uses pagans for his glory, and the only one who's upset about it is the prophet of God. Do not let your previous faithfulness be an investment because it's not for your present disobedience. Let's pray. God, uh, we're no different than Jonah. We're no different than Jonah because, uh, man, we are constantly rebelling against you. God, we willfully rebel against you with things that we don't like. We willfully rebel against you and use biblical language to justify our reasons and our behavior. And the truth, Lord, is that at no point do we actually submit, surrender, or surrender to you in prayer. God, would you... 
would you convict us of our sin, of our hardened hearts, of our apathy, of being asleep? Would you convict us so that we would look at the reality of where we find ourselves in our relationship with you? God, would you comfort us with your grace, whether it would be really loud like a storm or really soft just like your kindness? Would you comfort us with your grace? so that we would come to a place of knowing, remembering, rejoicing that you are pursuing us. God, may we surrender our heart to you this morning. No strings attached. May we just submit our heart to you this morning and its ugliness and the sin and its confusion and its brokenness all of those different facets of our heart that many of us are experiencing, may we submit that to you this morning. God, would you transform us with your transforming grace just like you did to those sailors in Jonah. Through conviction and comfort, may we surrender before you in worship this morning. God, as we leave here this morning, may we take the call to make disciples seriously. That your, that your pleasure in us isn't based on our performance, but our faithfulness. I should say our current faithfulness, our faithfulness right now. May we be a people who makes disciples for your glory and our good. May we slow down enough to see that you are pursuing us in the season that we're in. And again, to give you glory and it for, for it to be our good. God, as we walk into a time of tithes and offerings, Lord, this is where we give you this is where we give you our, our stuff. If, if worship and the sermon has been where we, where we give you our hearts, this is where we give you our stuff, our things. This is where we are. This is a, a, a public demonstration of your transforming grace. This is where we give generously. This is where we give sacrificially. This is where we give faithfully not without purpose, but for the purpose of extending or advancing your kingdom, for the purpose of creating avenues to continue to make disciples for your glory and our good, and so that we would be reminded that you've given us everything that we need. And so sacrifice becomes worship. God, I thank you for this time with my brothers and sisters. Lord, we love you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.